0: This is Citations Needed with Nima Shirazi and Adam Johnson. Welcome to Citations Needed, a podcast on the media, power, PR, and the history of bullshit. I am Nima Shirazi. I'm Adam Johnson. Thank you for joining us today. Of course, you can follow the show on Twitter at CitationsPod, Facebook, Citations Needed, and become a supporter of the show through patreon.com slash citationsneededpodcast. All your support through Patreon is so incredibly appreciated as we are 100% listener funded.
1: Yes, if you can, please subscribe to us on Patreon. It helps keep the show sustainable and keeps the episodes themselves free.
0: History will cast a shadow over Biden's decision to withdraw from Afghanistan. The Washington Post's David Ignatius warned in April of 2021. Biden's betrayal of Afghans will live in infamy, George Packer cautioned in the Atlantic magazine in August of that same year. And shortly thereafter, the Atlantic Council's Ariel Cohen wrote in Newsweek, the cost of betrayal in Afghanistan.
1: When news broke in April of 2021 that the Biden administration planned to withdraw all documented U.S. troops from Afghanistan after a 20-year occupation, media outlets almost uniformly rushed to issue condemnations. How could the U.S. and the West more broadly simply, quote, abandon the Afghan people, unquote, especially women we'd so bravely liberated? How could the US just up and leave when it had invested and in sacrificed so much to counter the Taliban over the course of two decades? This outrage stood and still stands
0: in stark contrast to the media's default state of indifference to the suffering people of Afghanistan and the US's extensive role in engineering that suffering. For many decades now, American, British, and other Western media have only really seemed to be concerned with the plight of Afghan people, namely women, when it serves to bolster the case for war, occupation, and the continuation of US regional hegemony. Meanwhile, During Afghanistan's now second winter of famine, after having more than $7 billion stolen from its economy by the United States and its allies, these very same pundits and outlets are uniformly silent on this unfolding human rights disaster caused, again, in large part by the United States itself.
1: On today's episode, we'll examine the media's pattern of selective chauvinistic outrage when addressing the welfare of Afghan people. We'll study how media diminishes the enormous role the U.S. played in destabilizing the country of Afghanistan and endangering its people, how our media portrays U.S. military solutions as the only means to support the Afghan people, and how the media treat Afghans as little more than pawns in a game of U.S. soft and hard power expansion and domestic media-focused moral preening. Later on the show, we'll be joined by two guests. The first... Hadiya
0: Afzal, a Chicago-based program coordinator for Unfreeze Afghanistan, a women-led campaign supporting the Afghan people's wish to live in peace and prosperity.
2: There's an extremely high percentage of Afghanistan at risk of food insecurity right now. Girls' education has also been under increasing threat by the Taliban. Escalating edicts by them have banned girls' education from secondary school and then universities as well. There's a whole timeline of back-and-forth promises and internal tensions. But overall, the country's in a very severe crisis of both, again, humanitarian and economic proportions. And the international community has a large role they can still play in helping to bring that to a halt.
0: We'll also speak with Julie Holler, Senior Analyst and Managing Editor at Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting.
3: It probably wouldn't surprise you to know that Before 9-11, women's rights in Afghanistan were really barely noticed by U.S. media. And then as the U.S. prepared to attack and then did attack Afghanistan, the coverage just exploded of women's rights. As soon as the war was prematurely declared over, it just disappeared again. So you just watch the spike go up and down depending on what's happening politically with the U.S. and Afghanistan.
1: So we've been meaning to do this episode for a while. The freezing of assets in Afghanistan and the subsequent famine and economic devastation they've wrought is a fairly urgent issue going on now for two winters. Activists have been screaming at the top of their lungs trying to get people to care and they don't. And since that's what we try to do on the show is highlight things that people don't care about, we're excited and privileged to talk about this topic today. We're going to dive into a little bit of background and history about how we sort of got here and talk about the moral inconsistencies of the media narratives that are used to discuss Afghanistan during and post-invasion, and highlight how, like with many of these conflicts overseas, these are not things that are happening despite the United States, they're not happening because of quote-unquote inaction, but are very much happening because of action the U.S. has taken, things they've actively done even post-withdrawal, something we've argued is good, but if you withdraw and then steal their money and make sure their economy tanks, that's not that great. There's a long history of Western empires proclaiming their duty to
0: defend human rights and often women's rights and women's lives in particular in order to justify imperial invasion and occupation. One of the most commonly cited examples and one that we have actually included before in episode 65 of Citations Needed, how empire uses feminist branding to sell war and occupation, is The statement made by the Earl of Cromer, the British Consul General in Egypt from 1883 to 1907, on a crusade to depict Islam as an inferior religion to Christianity, Cromer condemned the faith for its treatment of women, citing the veil to argue that Egyptians should be forcefully civilized by the British. In his 1908 book Modern Egypt, Cromer wrote this, quote, The position of women in Egypt and Mohammedan countries generally is therefore a fatal obstacle to the attainment of that elevation of thought and character which should accompany the introduction of Western civilization. Yet, as many, including scholar Leila Ahmed, have noted, Cromer whose heart supposedly bled so much for Egyptian women, agitated to perpetuate the subjugation of women in England. In 1908, after retiring from his work in Egypt and The very year that his book, Modern Egypt, was published, Cromer took the reins of the Men's League for Opposing Women's Suffrage back in England. Similar selective outrage over Mohammedan abuses were common across British media during their two wars in Afghanistan and the longtime occupation of India and Pakistan during the 19th and early 20th centuries.
1: So we're going to read an excerpt from the Newcastle Daily Chronicle from January of 1880. This was at the tail end of the second Afghan-British war that lasted from 1878 to 1880. This details the war crimes of the Mohammedans. The headline is the Afghan campaign, the state of Kabul, the barbarities of the enemy. It reads, quote, the dispersion of the enemy is complete. This is when the British took Kabul from the Mohammedans. The Mohammedans are abandoning Kabul, fearing retribution as they all sympathized with the enemy. The Hindus reported a reign of terror from the 15th of December. Every shop and house was gutted except for the Mohammedans. The women were stripped publicly. The children were seized and threatened with death. The men were shot. The Kuzabashas were spared after swearing on the Quran to be true to the Mohammedans. The Afghanistan tribesmen carried away a vast amount of loot. They brought their women and children to witness the British defeat. The jihad collapsed. Our troops have rested today. The snow was melting. The enemy's total loss was 2,000, unquote. And so... The barbarities is the enemy, this, is sort of, this isn't new, right? But the idea of highlighting the human rights abuses of those you're occupying was very common in, as we also discussed on episode 65 in the British occupation of India and Pakistan, Mohammedan invaders had suppressed Hindus, uh, which was true to some extent, right? A lot of this is true. And that they were effectively on a mission of civilization and liberation of the Hindu minority and to protect women and, and young girls. This was common in Algeria as well with the French. The French have kind of mastered this colonial feminism. The concept of a civilizing mission was central to French colonization and settler colonial rule of Algeria. Concepts of protecting women's rights became central to the French quest for domination, and the Muslim veil became its primary battleground. The article entitled Unveiled Them to Save Them, France and the Ongoing Colonization of Muslim Women's Bodies by Jaheen Kepsi from May of 2021 notes, quote, As a historical example, in 1958, the wives of French army officers presided over the public unveiling of Algerian women. These French wives made a number of Algerian women, quote, emancipate, unquote, themselves by making a public spectacle of their unveiling. Under French colonization, Muslim Maghrebi women were persuaded, paid, or forced to remove their veils and to adopt the slogan, quote, let's be like the French women, unquote.
0: Yeah, so this concept of, quote, unquote, liberating Algerian women became central to the campaign to build public support for France's brutal suppression, of Algerian resistance. Franz Fanon actually wrote about this in an essay called Algeria Unveiled, published in his 1965 book, A Dying Colonialism. Fanon wrote this, quote, this enabled the colonial administration to define a precise political doctrine. If we want to destroy the structure of Algerian society, its capacity for resistance, we must first of all conquer the women. We must go and find them behind the veil where they hide themselves and in the houses where the men kept them out of sight. It is the situation of women that was accordingly taken as the theme of action. The dominant administration solemnly undertook to defend this woman. Pictured as humiliated, sequestered, cloistered, it described the immense possibilities of women, unfortunately transformed by the Algerian man into an inert, demonetized, indeed dehumanized object. The behavior of the Algerian was very firmly denounced and described as medieval and barbaric, with infinite science a blanket indictment against the sadistic and vampirish Algerian attitude toward men was prepared and drawn up. Around the family life of the Algerian, the occupier piled up a whole mass of judgments, appraisals, reasons, accumulated anecdotes, and edifying examples, thus attempting to confine the Algerian within a circle of guilt, end quote.
1: Yeah, and obviously, uh, look, we're a secular left-wing podcast. We think women's liberation is good. The point is that there are cynical actors who are colonialists who use the pretense of liberal values and progress. Well, they don't really give a shit about it, again, as evidenced by the total lack of caring that the vast majority of people starving right now under this asset freeze are women and girls. And this kind of selective liberal in- civilizing mission was popular throughout the 18th, 19th, and the now 21st century, right? And this pretextual concern for people's rights, specifically women's rights, It does matter that it's not sincere because again, when it does come to harming and affecting the poor people that you are supposedly just liberated when it comes to stealing their shit, sanctioning them and committing siege warfare, that kind of bleeding heart is nowhere to be found. And this pretextual pseudo-feminism does a disservice to actual feminism just as the pretextual concern for human rights does a disservice to legitimate concerns for human rights. And then therefore that colonialism becomes associated with those concepts in many of these places. And that obviously has its own problems. To refocus now on Afghanistan, starting in the early
0: 2000s, Western media became very interested in the plight of Afghan women living under Taliban rule. Indignation at the oppression of Afghan women, and calls for international support were and are still necessary. But as history shows, the United States has been chiefly concerned with the experiences of Afghan women only when it contributes to a case for war and the expansion of U.S. soft and hard power worldwide. For instance, Philadelphia Inquirer columnist Trudy Rubin wrote an article about this on December 17, 2000. The piece was syndicated across North America, And given different headlines, depending on which publication it appeared in, of course. But these are just a couple of the headlines that accompanied this piece. Again, from December 17th, 2000. This from the Gazette in Montreal. The headline, Taliban Repression, Afghan Women Need Outsiders Help. The same article was headlined by the Tallahassee Democrat in Florida, Suffering is a Women's Lot in Afghanistan. Now, Rubin's piece didn't call for U.S. military intervention, per se, but rather for diplomatic approaches and the delivery of humanitarian aid. But it did blame the Taliban's ascent to power on the devastation wrought by the Soviet occupation and the Civil War, not, curiously, by the United States' military instigations over those years. Now, these arguments escalated in the ensuing months following this piece, The Edmonton Journal from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, on July 7th of 2001, had this headline. Afghan women fight for survival under Taliban regime. And in late August of 2001, CNN broadcast Beneath the Veil, a documentary capturing the brutality of the Taliban toward Afghan people, particularly women and children.
1: So just a few weeks later, 9-11 happened. And obviously after 9-11, the takes grew more hawkish because then the interest in, quote unquote, liberating women aligned with what the U.S. wanted to do, which was, turns out, go to war and occupy Afghanistan for 20 years. So the Los Angeles Times on October 7th, 2001, beneath the veil, anger seethes among Afghan women. Life under the Taliban is so repressive for Afghan women that many of them now see U.S. military action against the regime as their best hope for a freer life. So that's good that, quote, many of them agreed with the invasion. Unquote. The day the piece was published, October 7th, 2001, a US-led coalition invaded Afghanistan. Promptly, the media began releasing reports detailing the liberatory results of the invasion. The Los Angeles Times, November 21st, 2001. Quote. The face of liberation unshrouded. An excerpt reads, quote. Now is one of those once-in-a-generation moments when freedom has a face. Thousands of women's faces, in fact, appearing on the streets, bare to the winter sun, singing, laughing, And now what it means to be liberated from oppression, whether imposed by ideology or religion or just brute force is no longer a dry civics lesson, but a real life show in our living rooms every evening, one that American school children shouldn't miss. The New York Times wrote an editorial on November 24th, 2001, quote, liberating the women of Afghanistan. It read, quote, America did not go to war in Afghanistan so that women could once again feel the sun on their faces. But the reclaimed freedom of Afghan women is a collateral benefit that Americans can celebrate. After five years of Taliban rule, women in Afghanistan are uncovering their faces, looking for jobs, walking happily with female friends on the street, and even hosting a new show on Afghan television. So yeah, the consensus was that the invasion of Afghanistan and the indefinite occupation was good because it liberated the people of Afghanistan, just sort of incidentally but was also supposedly one of the kind of humanitarian motives that Laura Bush, then First Lady President George W. Bush, took this on as her cause and used the liberation of women as the kind of soft angle for this occupation and military actions within Afghanistan over the next seven years of his administration. Now, as the occupation of Afghanistan continued, media,
0: maybe if not always so breathlessly in the way that they did in the early years of the occupation, still continued to uncritically accept the expansion of U.S. power in the region and maintaining the presence of American troops in Afghanistan for years to come. When Barack Obama later announced plans to add 17,000 more troops, which he swiftly elevated to 30,000 troops in November of 2009, just his first year in office, the New York Times gave no more than two paragraphs
1: between two different articles to a singular anti-war voice cut to april of 2021 the biden administration announces plans to withdraw the final 3500 declared troops there were some private troops as well from afghanistan by september 11th of that year the plan was to leave some kind of minor residual forces and other kind of cia state department types but then the taliban took over so that never happened A search of the New York Times archives for pieces that include the terms Afghan and betrayal, in other words, pieces that lament the betrayal of the Afghan people post-invasion, through the end of 2021, a two-decade period returns 161 results, with one from 2013 entitled, In Afghanistan, Women Betrayed, which explicitly focuses on the Afghanistan government's oppression of women, but offers no critique of the U.S. or its role in the crisis. Another from 2018, after Trump issued an order to withdraw troops from Afghanistan, the New York Times warned of a, quote, betrayal, a word that we'll soon see is commonly used in response to threats of U.S. military withdrawals. The headline read, An Afghanistan Alarm and a Sense of Betrayal Over U.S. Drawdown. That was from December of 2018. And of those 161 results, 19 were published after Biden's withdrawal announcement. That's almost 12% in a period of just nine months over the course of 20 years. And so there was this acute sense that Biden was betraying the Afghan people by withdrawing American troops without any sense that perhaps a lot of Afghans and A lot of women didn't want the U.S. there. U.S. troops were
0: technically withdrawn from Afghanistan by the end of August 2021. But President Joe Biden never promised to end all U.S. military involvement at the time of His withdrawal announcement, in fact, he pledged that the U.S. would, quote, keep providing assistance to the Afghan national defense and security forces, end quote. Now, the New York Times reported that the U.S. would, quote, withdraw all combat troops from Afghanistan by September 11th, end quote. Yet, as Norman Solomon observed that same year, it took 32 paragraphs in that piece to acknowledge the following, quote, instead of declared troops in Afghanistan, the United States will most likely rely on a shadowy combination of clandestine special operations forces, Pentagon contractors, and covert intelligence operatives to find and attack the most dangerous Al-Qaeda or Islamic State threats, current and former American officials said, end quote. Yet with the swift collapse of the Afghan government after the withdrawal and the complete takeover of the Taliban in Afghanistan. U.S. mercenaries and these special forces really never got their chance to do what they were supposed to do, according to this piece. With the exception of drone and missile strikes, the U.S. military does not have a footprint anymore in the country.
1: The outrage during the announcement and the actual withdrawal was, of course, uniform and swift by U.S. media. Washington Post David Ignatius in April of 2021, quote, history will cast a shadow over Biden's decision to withdraw from Afghanistan. Noted CIA spokesman at the Washington Post, CNN opinion piece by David A. Adelman said, Biden is making a major mistake on Afghanistan. The Atlantic's George Packer, in August of 2021, during the actual withdrawal, wrote, quote, Biden's portrayal of Afghanistan will live in infamy. Trudy Rubin of the Philadelphia Inquirer wrote in August of 2021 as well, quote, the horror of Afghan women abandoned by American troop pullouts. The Washington Post ran a piece by Ahmed Massoud, who was the head of the Mujahideen, This was on August 18th of 2021. The Washington Post headline was, quote, The Mujahideen resistance to the Taliban begins now, but we need help, where it calls for U.S. clandestine assistance to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, something that's historically gone very well. One excerpt reads, quote, We need more weapons, more ammunition, and more supplies. America and its democratic allies do not just have the fight against terrorism in common with Afghans. We now have a long history made up of shared ideals and struggles. There is still much more you can do to aid this cause of freedom. You are our only remaining hope. Very Princess Leia of him. August 19th, 2021, op-ed by Ariel Cohen, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, wrote, quote, the cost of betrayal in Afghanistan, Caitlin Flanagan of the Atlantic from the same day, quote, the week the left stopped caring about human rights. And Adam, you actually wrote about that Caitlin Flanagan piece in The Atlantic at the time
0: to save yourself from quoting yourself. I will quote you. You wrote at the time, quote, The Atlantic's Caitlin Flanagan wrote a scolding piece in The Atlantic entitled, quote, The Week the Left Stopped Caring About Human Rights, end quote, where she accused anti-war liberals of being hypocrites who don't care about human rights if the U.S. military is the one doing the protecting and upholding. You would go on to write this, quote, Flanagan's missive even mischaracterized the position of Pakistani activist Malala Yousafzai insisting she was lobbying for continued US occupation when she was, in fact, doing the opposite, end quote.
1: Yeah, Flanagan, I mean, everybody needed to sort of find their puppet to But actually what she has done, is she had for years called for the US to leave Afghanistan. I think there was always debate about the process of it, whether or not it was done right. And that's a sort of open conversation that people can have. But the idea that the US should not withdraw was definitely not a position she actually had. But again, the headlines kept coming. The New York Times, in Afghanistan, an unceremonious end, and a shrouded beginning, August 30th, 2021, August 31st, 2021, from the AP, Afghans arc from 9-11 to today, once hopeful, now sad, with a picture of a sad kid. From later that December, New York Times Magazine, inside the fall of Kabul, and on the ground account, CNN ran multiple segments, Jake Tapper especially ran all these segments talking about how Biden had betrayed the Afghan people and it was the sort of sad lament, the fall of Kabul. Everyone analogized it to the um, fall of Saigon without any awareness of the history of why the Saigon fell and the the idea that somehow if the U.S. had stayed in Vietnam for another 20 years, we eventually would have won. It's not clear. But the idea is that the U.S. had been humiliated. There was these visuals of people jumping on helicopters and escaping out of airplanes from the Kabul airport and this was a form of humiliation. And what people don't quite understand or appreciate is that, Nima, for 20 years, Afghanistan was a place that people like Jake Tapper, who needed to latch their facile- Centrist brand onto the troops. It's where they went to like build their credibility. You put the flak jacket on, you report, you, you know, you spend a year there. You maybe even write a, a self-serving memoir or book about, you know, how you know the 104th whatever division and how tough they are. And it's this again, it's this sort of middle brow corporate media thing you do to kind of get your bona fides to go back and basically anchor in front of an air-conditioned desk and make $2 million a year. It's the kind of thing you did to cut your teeth. And so this is also true of a lot of elites who wanted to join the military, right? President Biden's kid was in the military, right? Harry Duke of Sussex, of course, wrote in his memoirs recently about how he allegedly killed 25 people and, you know, it sort of was no big deal. It's sort of where you go to kind of cut your teeth. And it's this war that sort of always was. And now it's gone and that gives them a sad because, you know, generously you could say, right, that when they go and they hang out with the, you know, 104th Airborne and they play poker and drink whiskey with them and they stay at the hotels in Kabul and they get to know all the NGOs again, many of whom are working within a horrible system to try to do good things, right? These are not bad people, but they're kind of the soft arm of the American US and allied occupation, that they kind of begin to buy into the humanitarian narrative. This is a very common thing because they don't see the other side of the equation. They don't see the missile strikes, drone strikes, and US raids that have devastated Afghanistan because that's not really what they're privy to.
0: Yeah, there has long been a dearth of reporting about the, uh, you know, effects of a 20 year long occupation. I mean, over a decade ago, I remember when Lawrence O'Donnell reported on a uh, Chinook transport helicopter crash. The helicopter was shot down, US military helicopter shot down, killing 30 American soldiers, uh, including 17 elite Navy SEALs. And Lawrence O'Donnell called that on his MSNBC show, the deadliest day of the war. He told his viewers, quote, this weekend saw the worst single loss of life in the 10 years of the Afghan war, end quote. I actually wrote about this at the time, noting that not only Americans die there, and actually the vast loss of life has obviously been the Afghans themselves now one notable exception to the media rule of lamenting the withdrawal and talking about Afghanistan only insofar as it was a you know quagmire of Vietnam proportions the loss of American blood and treasure but never really focusing on the people who live there the uh, one real media exception to this was Anand Gopal's piece in the New Yorker in September 2021 entitled the other Afghan women in it Gopal writes this, quote, Both sides of the war did make efforts to avoid civilian deaths. In addition to issuing warnings to evacuate, the Taliban kept villagers informed about which areas were seated with improvised explosive devices and closed roads to civilian traffic when targeting convoys. The coalition deployed laser guided bombs, used loudspeakers to warn villagers of fighting and dispatch helicopters ahead of battle. They would drop leaflets saying, Stay in your house, save yourselves, Shakira recalled. In a war waged in mud walled warrens teeming with life, however, Nowhere was truly safe, and an extraordinary number of civilians died. Sometimes such casualties sparked widespread condemnation, as when a NATO rocket struck a crowd of villagers in Sanjin in 2010, killing 52, but the vast majority of incidents involved one or two deaths, anonymous lives that were never reported on, never recorded by official organizations, and therefore never counted as part of the war's civilian toll." Gopal goes on to write this, quote, some British officers on the ground grew concerned that the U.S. was killing too many civilians and unsuccessfully lobbied to have American special forces removed from the area. Instead, troops from around the world poured into Helmand, including Australians, Canadians, and Danes, but villagers couldn't tell the difference. To them, the occupiers were simply Americans, end quote. The Cost of War Project at Brown University has estimated that the war in Afghanistan has directly killed over 243,000 people in Afghanistan and Pakistan, more than 71,000 of whom were civilians. These figures do not include deaths caused by disease, loss of access to food, water, infrastructure, being uh, displaced from their homes, and other indirect consequences
1: of this kind of war and occupation. Well, yeah, what Gopal pointed out in his various media appearances for This Democracy Now and so forth was we just don't hear about the deaths in rural areas, that there's a large rural-urban divide and that the journalists who parachute in and report on it only get the urban side of the story. And there is so much death not reported in rural areas and the anger towards the American war and the American occupation, even from people who, again, just as well hate the Taliban, is basically not reported. It's not part of the calculus. It was asserted as an unassailable categorical fact that the Afghan people wanted the US to stay, and that was simply not true. Obviously, some did, and obviously some don't. (laughs) But there was very little analysis or acceptance of the fact that there was a meaningful constituent who didn't want the US to continue occupying Afghanistan forever and that their presence simply made the Taliban more powerful and the violence more acute. And then when the US left in August, they immediately froze the assets of Afghanistan's central bank, $7 billion of it was held in the U.S. Federal Reserve. The Biden administration stated in February of 2022 that they had planned to use half of the $7 billion for humanitarian relief and the remaining half for 9-11 victims. The $3.5 billion for 9-11 victims is currently being held up in court. Uh, A great deal of 9-11 victims' families don't want the money. They find it quite perverse that a bunch of Saudi nationals who destroyed the Twin Towers would somehow result in Afghan people-owned small businesses in Afghanistan having to pay up a debt 20 years later, it's, it doesn't make any sense at all. I think, I mean, almost everyone knows it's a totally cynical marketing thing. And then this $3.5 billion has been sitting in something called the Afghan Trust, which hasn't gone anywhere but hasn't been dispersed at all. And there's no immediate plans to disperse it at all. And so when you take away all this money from the Afghan economy, this completely torpedoed the economy. The economy sank precipitously after the US withdrawal. Immediately there was a famine or near like famine conditions that winter. This winter there is as well there is horrific stories that we've seen coming out over the past 14, 15 months about fathers having to sell their daughters off into marriage to pay for food, uh, cannibalism, the most horrific examples of starvation that you could possibly imagine. And this is barely reported on. Uh, It was reported on when it really made some press back in November of 2021 but the US's culpability and responsibility for it was completely glossed over, as I wrote about at the time. For my substack, I wrote an article, pundits whose hearts bleed for the people of Afghanistan in August now silent as US sanctions cause mass starvation of Afghans, And which I wrote, in one 7 minute and 53 second segment from November 1st episode of Jake Tapper's show The Lead, reporter Anna Koren covered the humanitarian crisis centering families so desperate they were selling their young daughters into forced marriage. In a post-report interview with Tapper, Korn vaguely discusses the cutting off of aid and freezing billions, but made no mention of US sanctions or the US role in it, referring only to quote the international community, unquote, quote, freezing billions of dollars in reserves, unquote. The primary culprit is said by Tapper to be the Taliban, which he tells Korn has made the practice of selling children, quote unquote, worse. The report has now since been disputed with allegations from the Afghans that the video of Korn had made up their story, separate issue, but this is definitely something that happens and has happened. This has been the extent that Tapper has covered the crisis, a single report that omits US's role in creating the humanitarian crisis. Like Tapper, NBC's Richard Engel took the omission of the US's role in worsening Afghanistan's hunger crisis one step further, not so much ignoring the issue, but actually reporting on it while glossing over US's responsibility and helping to create it. In one recent four minute and 21 second report from Afghanistan that aired online for NBC's streaming show NBC Now on December 16th, Engel discussed the starvation and economic ruin in harrowing detail, even calling it a, quote, man-made crisis, but which men? It's not clear. Engel entirely ignored US-led sanctions and stealing of billions in Afghanistan's assets, only making vague reference to, quote, dried up foreign aid, unquote. And So you saw this immediately during the winter of 2021 and 2022, where all these pundits like Richard Engel and Jake Tapper, whose hearts bled for the people of Afghanistan, who made a huge production out of crying. Uh, Richard Engel somewhat famously said the following... The worst capitulation of Western values in in our lifetimes. You left behind. I I went to Afghanistan, I arrived a couple of weeks ago. It was a republic backed by the United States, backed by the West. Now it is an emerging Islamic emirate trying to find its way. Okay, so here we have a sensibly straight reporter telling us it's a, a capitulation of Western values. Not quite clear what he means by Western values.
0: It was a republic, Adam.
1: It was a republic and now it's an Islamic state. It's like, yeah. Okay. It's a little more complicated than that. But again, this, the, his heart bled on August 30th, 2021, and then when it came time to report on the US sanctions that have caused mass starvation and poverty and basically evaporated half of the economy overnight, uh, he doesn't even mention the US role in it because they don't really care about the Afghan people. They care about the Afghan people only insofar as they can provide a moral bludgeon to support permanent US occupation and to create a place where journalists can go and cut their teeth. And again, I think to some extent, they're not that cynical. I think they buy into the sort of civilizing mission aspect, right? I think to some extent, they really do kind of believe it, as a lot of nationalists believe their own bullshit. But then again, the second that the US is not their inaction, but the thing they're actually doing, which is to say, stealing $7 billion of Afghan money for one of the, if not the poorest countries on earth, $7 billion goes a long way. They're nowhere to be found. And they'll sort of do the, oh, dear, reporting and and all the sadness, but they don't tell you that actually you can call your congressperson or call your senator or call or demand your president to give them this money back. There's no sort of call to action. It's just emotional pornography.
0: The New York Times editorial board even agrees with that.
1: And so there's very few instances where you have a very acute case of crocodile tears, where you can sort of say, all these people in August of 2021 acted like they care deeply about the Afghan people, but then when they were starving over 14, 15 months, basically they never talk about it, even though there is something very much the U.S. can do today that does not involve armed shipments, that does not involve sending over tanks and surface-to-air missiles, but can actually just give people their money back and there's crickets and they're nowhere to be found. To
0: discuss this more, we're now gonna be joined by Hadiya Afzal, Chicago-based program coordinator for the organization Unfreeze Afghanistan a women-led campaign supporting the Afghan people's wish to live in peace and prosperity. Hadiya will join us in just a moment. Stay with us. We are joined now by Hadiya Afzal. Hadiya, thank you so much for joining us today on Citations Needed.
2: Thank you guys for having me. I really enjoy your podcast. So
1: Well, thank you so much. We're excited to jump into this to try to contextualize a little bit, if you could. I want to sort of recap. I know that after the U.S. withdrew in August of 2021 and the Taliban very quickly took power soon after, the United States froze $7 billion of the country's central bank assets, along with Europe and the UAE. We've talked about this at the beginning of the show. And this, of course, alongside with other sanctions and the political turmoil, has caused a humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. That has included famine or near famine, depending who you ask, and uh, much, much hardship. I want to sort of, if you can, can you kind of start by laying out the situation? Can you give a sort of explanation as the current state of things?
2: Sure. So after the immediate takeover, the U.S. and international community quickly moved to freeze Afghanistan's central bank assets that were located overseas. This, along with sanctions on the country, led to a severe economic crisis where ordinary Afghans couldn't withdraw their own money from the banks to pay for necessities. And so this along with inflation led to a really massive humanitarian crisis which even aid organizations in Afghanistan have said they don't have the capacity to address by themselves. So there's a extremely high percentage of Afghanistan at risk of food insecurity right now. Girl education has also been under increasing threat by the Taliban, escalating edicts by them have banned girls' education from secondary school and then universities as well. There's a whole timeline of back and forth promises and internal tensions. But overall, the country's in a very severe crisis of both, again, humanitarian and economic proportions. And the international community has a large role they can still play in helping to bring that to a halt.
0: I really want to talk about these frozen funds and the alleged plans for them. But before we get there, I kind of want to follow up on this idea that there's both a humanitarian crisis and an economic one, and that that's really like talked about as if they're distinct things, right? This kind of false distinction. Can you kind of talk about how it's impossible to really fix a humanitarian crisis by exacerbating an economic one and how the current stance on the Central Bank of Afghanistan is exacerbating this problem. Maybe talk about how this central bank was even created, what it was modeled after, and how the freezing of the funds is not just the same as like taking money away from the Taliban, but actually takes money away from regular people.
2: Sure. So one of the biggest things to try to emphasize as advocates is that this is a humanitarian crisis with economic causes. And the biggest causes are that asset freeze and ongoing sanctions. The Afghanistan central bank was modeled after the U.S. Federal Reserve and built during the U.S. time in Afghanistan. It was the first centralized financial institution of the country, replacing a more informal hawala system of like borrowing off the books, essentially. So this required a massive effort. the entire country of hiring civil servants to run this, hiring independent board of governors as well to oversee this, separate from the actual government, much like the US Federal Reserve. And in that same vein, it's almost impossible to think of seizing the United States' money, just another sovereign nation just being able to do that. And the main reason Afghanistan's money was even in the US in the first place was because That's what the U.S. told Afghanistan and other countries across the world. They could put their money and it would be safe. (laughs) So this was a really unprecedented move by the Biden administration. And their ongoing releases early 2022 about how that money was going to be dealt with even talked about how they are making the first of its kind split in those funds, half going, pending that lawsuit with the 9-11 families case and the other half in the newly established Afghan fund. So a lot of this is unprecedented mm-hmm. and that's why it makes it even more important that advocates allies highlight just how significant the impacts of this are for the Afghan people because, again, it's their money and their banks' money in there and it's not anything to use for government functions. So.
1: Yeah. So of the $7 billion, billion was set aside for 9-11 victims' families, which is quite perverse. In fact, many, many 9-11 victim families have signed an open letter saying they don't want the money, saying they probably should go to the poor people of Afghanistan, that these two things are unrelated. Of course, bin Laden was founded in Pakistan, but maybe that's a different conversation to have. The other $3.5 billion has ostensibly been set aside for something called the private trust, the Afghan fund. There's four trustees, as Sarah Lazar at Workday Magazine reported, One of the trustees says it's unlikely the assets will ever get dispersed anytime soon. They're all kind of appointed by the White House. There's a general sense that they'd kind of need to look like there's some mystery fund, but no actual monies are being dispersed. It appears like there's this sort of game of chicken unfolding between the White House and starving people, or I guess the Taliban. They claim that there's like criteria that the Taliban could reach or meet so-called human rights criteria, although I think it's less about human rights cynically. I think it's more about other things. And then they would release the funds. Mm-hmm. But this seems like a non-starter in terms of like what's actually going to happen. So really, they're just kind of taking people's money, as you said, not even the government's money, but people's money, businesses' money, small businesses' money, and they're just never going to give it back. It's kind of an FU. A lot of people say, oh, well, it's politically toxic for Biden to give the money back. You know, They sort of hit him over the head like they did with... Uh, Obama with the Iran deal, you know, lifting sanctions on Iran. It was every every day on Fox News was Obama gives 300 billion dollars back to the the mullahs. (laughs) And it's like this kind of bullshit. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's more than just political cowardice. It's also there seems like there's a vengeance element to it. The military establishment, the national security establishment is kind of mad they lost and are just doing what is, I mean, you could do it with a pen and a suit and tie, but it's still just a form of siege warfare. It's just siege warfare. It's just another form of siege. The oldest form of warfare, right? It goes back to the Bronze Age. Just cut a city off and starve it. I want you to comment, if you will, on this kind of game of chicken, whether or not you think that the White House is maybe is, has any kind of sincere commitment to human rights per se, or whether or not this is just politically convenient way of getting revenge, if for want of a better term.
2: Yeah. So I think, quite honestly, advocates are unsurprised at the pace the Afghan fund is moving at. Despite some outspoken members of the board, like Dr. Shah Marabi, who's called for a return of the assets to the central bank since 2021, there are, as you mentioned, other international agendas at play in the fund's decision-making or lack thereof. So the U.S. representatives on this matter have made the administration's concerns clear, despite the harm they know this freeze has had on the people of Afghanistan, and I think decades of international attempts to use women's rights as a foothold for occupation has led to a terrible backlash now that there is no interest in sincere and sustained diplomatic negotiation to unravel. And so despite the impact that revoking women and girls' rights to education and work and travel are having, protests and urges otherwise from international advocates, especially tied to the asset freeze and sanctions have often led to the extreme ruling faction of the Taliban digging their heels in deeper against these perceived outside influences. So recently, the Taliban also issued an edict banning female NGO staff from working in Afghanistan, saying they hadn't observed proper hijab and dress codes. And so 15 leading NGOs in Afghanistan have since suspended that work, which is a huge, huge decision Those 15 organizations cumulatively help millions of Afghans and their staff, many of whom are Afghan themselves, are like the sole breadwinners for their family. So this decision has had an enormous ripple effect and the UN is speaking out against this. Jan Eglin from the Norwegian Refugee Council himself has traveled to Afghanistan now to speak with the Taliban directly on this. And they're very clear in saying, we are not the ones who can make any big movements happen. This requires diplomatic negotiation from the West and from the countries that are holding this money and have that leverage over the Taliban. The issue is, just, is the breaking of trust and what trust means for each side in these potential negotiations.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I'd love to talk about what you see as the media aspect of this, what is being communicated. And, you know, as we know, for decades, I mean, before the invasion of Afghanistan, during the occupation, certainly ramped up before the more recent final, quote unquote, withdrawal of U.S. troops. There was so much hand wringing, so much concern. As Adam mentioned earlier, you just mentioned of human rights and namely women's rights. And you know what will be the fate of the Afghan people if the U.S. troops leave and the Taliban comes back into power. And yet that concern for the people, right? That we read about in editorials, what's gonna happen if U.S. troops leave? Oh, the poor people. Suddenly this concern kind of evaporates when U.S. troops aren't there, when it's maybe not in the best military interest of this country to you know, promote a certain agenda we stop hearing about famine, we stop hearing about poverty, we stop actually hearing about women's rights. What have you and your organization, Unfreeze Afghanistan, been doing to kind of refocus the media on some of these concerns? How do you think this can be done if there isn't, say, the interest of the U.S. military state kind of pushing a press agenda? How do you keep this front of mind? How do you keep this kind of information out there and get people to care?
2: So our strategy has been to focus concerted efforts where we can and finding creative ways to raise awareness and also bringing new coalitions of different types of groups and individuals together to make a media splash where we can. So one big push we did in 2022 was with over 70 plus renowned international economists, including Nobel laureate Joseph Stieglitz, to write to the White House and urge the release of the bank assets, detailing the impact of the freeze and the subsequent collapse of the Afghan economy. It is, as always, these crises are the most maddening, an issue with a solution, yet politics and narrative standing in the way. It's always the Afghan people, the Iraqi people, the Yemeni people who suffer from American inaction and unwillingness. So once enough Americans are speaking up and out against this and demanding movement from their electeds, I think that's when we'll actually see a change in this. The movement around the Afghan Adjustment Act right now is a great example of how these types of politics have formed around a specific push for a need that this diaspora saw unaddressed. If we can channel that same effort into helping Afghans in Afghanistan, in their homes where they want to stay, that is the best thing we can possibly do. You've probably seen all these news stories you know, the escalating crises have pushed people in Afghanistan to extremes they would have never otherwise taken. Rising child marriage packs, fathers selling their kidneys, parents drugging their children to help them sleep. These are stories that get a lot of traction sometimes with their headlines. And oftentimes the economic causes, the asset freeze, the sanctions are maybe a passing sentence somewhere towards the end if mentioned at all. And so this is where we see kind of an uncomfortable type of portrayal of Afghanistan now where it's falling into the same type of hole we're seeing in coverage of Yemen, for example, where it's just this awful crisis and your donation is needed and aid is needed. But who is supporting the Saudi blockade? Who yeah. is responsible for holding the Afghan people's money? Like these are the actual root causes that need to continue being called out. Yeah. And the advocates need to continue calling media outlets out for When they fail to uphold those types of journalistic standards in their reporting.
1: Yeah, because it's, you know, I think countries are like people, like one should be self critical before they start criticizing others. And we talked about this earlier this Jake Tapper segment that dealt with child marriage to sort of keep food on the table. And there's literally one passing line about US sanctions that well, it says quote, unquote, Western sanctions. Mm. And most of it blames the Taliban. And it's like, well, yeah, okay, obviously, they're partly to blame. I mean, I think everyone can kind of agree with that. But there's nothing we can do about that, where there is something we can do about this. Mm-hmm. Unless your plan is to reinvade, like there's not much you can really do. And so there's this, you're right, it's dissolved into what Adam Curtis calls oh dearism where it's kind of this, um, you know, sort of Sally Struthers, look at the starving children, but we're not responsible. The Biden White House is not responsible. The Democrats are not responsible. It's a crisis from nowhere mm-hmm. with only individual solutions, not
0: systemic ones.
1: Like the first rule of a crisis is like, if you can do something about it, you do your thing first before you start criticizing other people, you know?
2: Well, guys, that's exactly why they gave licenses. Duh. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> Exactly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the Treasury offered these licenses, and now it's all fine.
1: So I want to sort of talk about this kind of moral extortion, because you, you see this when you talk about this topic, as you say like, well, you know, the Biden White House can give some of the assets back. And then this kind of emotional extortion is very common in the, with the State Department crowd. But they say, well, that's just going to reward bad behavior on the part of the Taliban. And it's sort of a very kind of comforting thought that these people sort of are starving it's this game of chicken, and they're starving because of the bad deeds of the others, not something we're doing. And that, that there's, even though the White House, as far as I know, hasn't really laid out an actual criteria of what they can do to get the money, that's very ambiguous. It's just, as far as I know, like the, the State Department's extremely vague about what that's supposed to be. Right. Stop being the Taliban.
2: Yeah, exactly. The Treasury Department put out anti-counterterrorism financing mechanisms. They need the central bank to implement and a bunch of infrastructure they need in place. All of that can happen if they're given the support they need to reimplement that, you know, rehire the civil servants, people are waiting to get it back up and running. That is not of any interest to the West. So they will say XYZ needs to happen, but they won't either acknowledge when it does, they won't help any efforts to get that going, and they'll use that as an excuse to continue holding out on the return.
0: And as you said, the way to implement that stuff is also going to require the money it takes to create those programs or make those changes or run a government or have certain programs in place. So it's it's like literally holding hostage the thing that would allow them to get their money back possible. Do you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. there's actually there's like a catch 22 built into that. It's like, do all these things, you can get your money back. And they're like, yeah, but we need our money back to do those things. And they're like, well, I guess that's a problem you're going to have to solve. Yeah.
1: Well, these so-called human rights benchmarks are are afforded to like no other country. It's not as if we say Israel has to stop gunning down Palestinian children. Saudi Arabia has to stop bombing funerals and and mass beheading Shia before we give them $750 million in arms. These sort of precious two criteria exist in no other context.
2: Yeah, you've created an absolutely unprecedented situation where you've taken a sovereign nation's assets and then you make them jump through higher and higher hoops while you just sit there and watch that money drain away essentially and then say oh well we are the biggest donors to the UN fund so actually we're helping <laughs> right like that's not the measure by which you can you can measure that
0: so before we let you go We'd love to hear more about the work that Unfreeze Afghanistan is doing. You know, what do you want folks listening to know? I know we've been, you know, really focused on these frozen assets, obviously, and how the Afghan fund, which is like this, you know, Swiss foundation with American, only four trustees, as we've been talking about, like, they haven't done anything in three months. It doesn't seem like anything is good. You know, it doesn't seem like grants or a release of funds are going to be made anytime soon. So what do you want folks to know about that part of your work, but also... Unfreeze Afghanistan does so much other stuff. Uh, What do you want folks to know about and how can people get involved and help out?
2: Sure, absolutely. So right now in January 2023, right before the end of December 22, because of the NGO ban, UN flights carrying cash for humanitarian aid into Afghanistan have already been suspended pending that NGO ban. That aid was supplied in cash already due to US sanctions. So right now we are being pushed kind of into a further corner where we have to reassess where our joint efforts can make the most impact. So either fundraising to keep school-age girls learning while waiting for diplomatic negotiations at a governmental level to move forward. That same head of the NRC, Jan Eglund, he has been calling for the release of the Afghan assets and a ease of lifting the sanctions for years. And this is the type of advocacy that needs to be actually taken seriously because these same people that are respected widely, you know, the Human Rights Watch has come out, long detailed report of the impacts of the asset freeze. All of these organizations are calling for sustained re-engagement with the de facto government because right now the people of Afghanistan are being punished for a government they did not choose. And people will try to shame advocates for our position on unfreezing that aid and the assets, but the people's right to live in dignity with food and access to their own funds and their right to education is a thought that can be held at the same time. And so we encourage people who are upset about this, who feel as though this is something deeply wrong that the us is continuing to do to the people of afghanistan to get involved to reach out you might have new representatives now but to make this a priority because oftentimes you find unlikely allies in this type of work i've been working in the foreign policy space for a few years now and you will find people you can work with if your voice is loud enough to attract those people to you so i think we need to focus on broad coalitions to push for this because there is no way we'll be heard otherwise.
1: The New York Times supports it. I mean, the, the, the most normie of normie, they support unfreezing Afghanistan's Afghanistan' I think they had some bullshit liberal like hand-wringing, but they, I think they ultimately agree with you. So this is not like a fringe position. This is kind of a no-brainer decision where for people who are not concerned with what swing voters in Fairfax County think or are not punitive State Department and, and CIA officials, mad that they got humiliated.
0: Yeah, but you can tell that there's this like emotional blackmail because of what they did with half of the funds, the you know $3.5 billion going to 9-11 victims. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. 21 years after the fact. Well,
2: when I say stuff like Broad Coalition, I mean, for example, the 9-11 family for Peaceful Tomorrows who are part of Unfreeze. We submitted an amicus brief to the court regarding that lawsuit that was accepted. So like, we're just waiting on these things. But even the lower judge recommendations was this is an obvious open and shut, no, this money does not belong to those people kind of case. This is Afghanistan's money. Mm-hmm. So there are signs, I think, logical people in positions in the media, in government at different levels, know what's right. It's just about forcing that political moment where you can actually have that discussion again that hasn't been had in many years, informal agreement that has been kind of used as a back-and-forth tool by each side while getting ultimately nowhere.
0: Well, I think that is a great place to leave it. Urge everyone to check out the great work of Unfreeze Afghanistan. We've been speaking with Hadiya Afzal, a Chicago-based program coordinator for Unfreeze Afghanistan, a woman-led campaign supporting the Afghan people's wish to live in peace and prosperity. Hadiya, thank you so much for joining us today on Citations Needed.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad she came on to establish the stakes here, because I I think that, um, you know, we're not just a bunch of holier than thou, lefties asserting a bunch of shit, like the stakes are very eminent, they're very high, and they've been trying to bang their head against the wall for 15, 16, 17 months, trying to get someone to care. And again, the same media outlets whose hearts bled for Afghans are nowhere to be found here. And And
0: especially bled for Afghan women, right? I mean, decades, decades of that, of the plight of the Afghan woman and how because of The freedom policy of the US occupiers, Afghan women had it better than ever, yada, 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 right? And now, oh my God, it's going to be sunk back into the dark ages. But even with that approach, the media has completely abandoned the idea of promoting anything that would actually help Afghan women now, that doesn't involve like reinvading the country, but rather involves allowing the Afghan economy to maybe somehow recover, to allow people to have jobs, to allow people to care for their families in ways that actually save many lives. Al Jazeera reported at the end of 2021 that the cutoff in aid to Afghanistan, quote, may kill more Afghans than the war itself, end quote. So I think that idea of how the media cares so much, for a second or you know, about certain things for a while. And then when it's not in the interest of the US military, it just completely changes.
1: Right, because this is fundamentally a media story. I mean, activists trying to get attention, trying to get momentum, they need media to care. Although, you know, there's no real sort of, it's not like the evacuation on August 30th, 31st of 2021, where there's sort of this moment where everyone sort of cares. The deaths are largely obscure. They're not filmed. They're not seen. The starvation, the the deprivation, the destruction of entire economies is not seen. People don't know about it because again, it doesn't suit the interest of US corporate media and the national security establishment. And so this is fundamentally both a humanitarian story, which our first guest helped us out with. And now this is very much a a media story, which our second guest is going to help us out with.
0: So our next guest, Julie Holler, of Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, wrote this in September of 2022, quote, when a government invades a country, occupies it for 20 years, and then sends it into a humanitarian crisis by appropriating most of its money, you'd expect good journalists from that country to follow the story closely and vigorously hold their government to account. In the US, instead, you get largely shrugs and government talking points, end quote. We will now speak with Senior Analyst and Managing Editor at Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, Julie Holler. She'll join us in just a moment. Stay with us. We are joined now by Julie Holler. Julie, thank you so
1: much for joining us today on Citations Needed.
3: Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here.
1: As you detail in your work, Concern for women's rights in Afghanistan, as we've talked about at the top of the show, from U.S. media, not to say, of course, people who are actually invested in this as such, largely ebbs and flows with the geopolitical needs of the U.S. military and State Department at any particular time. So I want to sort of start by talking about the findings you found in your research about this issue, how women's rights were covered in Afghanistan. Obviously, we also see similar lines when it comes to talking about you know it's kind of the wire there are no gay bars in gaza line as israel is leveling entire buildings and wiping out three generations we see this with iran other countries where it's convenient but it's more acute most acute in afghanistan i want to kind of ask you in your findings what did you find about this kind of timing of these concerns and the sort of function they serve in winning over liberals for supporting what at this point would have been just endless occupation for the next 150 years
3: right sure well So FAIR has been documenting this since 2001, and it probably wouldn't surprise you to know that before 9-11, women's rights in Afghanistan were really barely noticed by U.S. media. And then, as the U.S. prepared to attack and then did attack Afghanistan, the coverage just exploded of women's rights. As soon as the war was prematurely declared over, it just disappeared again. So you just watch the spike go up and down depending on what's happening politically with the U.S. and Afghanistan. And it was explicitly presented by the media, by politicians and the media as a justification for the invasion. As you probably remember, at the time, you know, it's like all these burqa clad women need rescue. Mm-hmm. There was the famous Time magazine cover, lifting the veil, all this talk about the supposed liberation by U.S. troops and the jubilation. And there's this just huge media coverage of this. And then Silence basically because the narrative is they needed rescue. We rescued them. The end, right? So the US is there. So stories are so you know, there was really very little coverage, ongoing coverage of, well, you know, what's happening to these women that we were so concerned about. There would occasionally be some talk as the years went on, more or less talk about withdrawal, we've been here long enough, what's happening, we should withdraw. And in those moments, you would sometimes see women being trotted out again as political pawns, like, oh, well, we can't leave because what about the women? Generally though, you're back down to minimal coverage. We did a study when the withdrawal, the final withdrawal actually was happening. And we also looked at the previous seven years. We found that there were more TV news segments about women's rights in Afghanistan in seven days of withdrawal coverage than in the previous seven years. Mm. So, you know, it's so patently obvious that they're just political pawns, right? You have these journalists professing real concern. And like, who am I to say? I think probably they do feel concern for Afghan women and girls. But you've got CNN Wolf Blitzer talking about, with the US withdrawal, talking about the horror awaiting Afghan women and girls. You had Caitlin Flanagan writing about how because the left supported the withdrawal, that the left clearly doesn't care about human rights. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, there's so many problems with the narrative, right? Besides the disgusting and opportunistic nature of it, Caitlin Flanagan had... I searched and searched. I could not find her writing a single word about Afghan women and girls prior to that article.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. One sees that a lot. And of course, subsequently, there's been, after the withdrawal, a lot of people say, well, that's good, obviously, because the status quo was simply not working for anybody. And now you have the sanctions regime that is done ostensibly for the Taliban to make some human rights concessions, but that's typically also kind of cover for what is basically geopolitical concessions, kind of pivot away from China, et cetera, with the human rights elements kind of being a sort of nice afterthought, I suppose, to kind of make the State Department types feel good about themselves. And until they meet these criteria... The U.S. has frozen $9 billion in their assets, untold economic damage, because basically Afghanistan was just a confederation of NGOs. And then when those NGOs pull out, the entire economy tanks. Teachers aren't paid. Medical professionals aren't paid. And the only way you can work in the country is if you work with the government. You work with the Taliban, which we talked about at the top of the show as well. And they're refusing to do that. And so you have this, especially during winter that just passed and then the winter coming up, there has been widespread famine. And that obviously is disproportionately going to harm women and girls. And yet the same kind of rhetoric is missing for the most part to the extent to which we do get caught up with the status of women and girls in Afghanistan. And the reporting, at least some of the analysis I did, is that it's people like Jake Tapper will sort of solely blame it on the Taliban, which to be clear is they are partly responsible, right? They're the ruling government. They're not immune to responsibility. But the U.S.'s role in creating this... um, famine, which disproportionately affects women and girls, and putting it in a kind of gendered lens or women's rights lens is almost unheard of. So talk about that double standard if you can, and why we can only view women's oppression through one specific lens, which happens to be the one that allies with the U.S. occupying Afghanistan forever.
3: Right. I mean, this story, first of all, generally the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan post-withdrawal has gotten Just criminally little coverage in the US, I would say. I mean, this is a crisis. There are multiple factors going on, and it has to do with climate change and and drought, and it has to do with the pandemic and all sorts of things. But you cannot avoid the fact that the huge central part of this is the US, is Joe Biden's decision to freeze that money. It's, you said nine billion. I've heard seven billion. It's billions of dollars. That's Afghanistan's money. That's Afghan. That's the money that belongs to the Afghan people. And Joe Biden was just like, you know, I'm just going to do what I want with it. He decided, he announced a few months ago that he was going to take half of it and give it to 9-11 families. Which is, I, I feel like everybody should be just absolutely outraged at this, but there's just so little coverage period of it happening. And then of that coverage, there's so little, that's really all that critical of what's happening. I did another study about this when Biden first made that announcement about how he was gonna take the money and what he was gonna do with it. When Joe Biden makes this announcement about what he's doing, there's just so little coverage on TV news. There was no mention of it on ABC, NBC, CBS. They didn't even mention it. Mm -hmm. This is like a multi-billion dollar theft, no word. On our network news. And, you know, there were just a few brief mentions on cable. There were only two shows that even had brought a guest on. One was CNN, I think it was Jake Tapper, who brought on a 9 11 family right. member.
0: Not someone from Afghanistan, of
3: course. <laughs> right, right, right. No, there was one guest who was Afghan American who was brought on to talk about this. It was actually a great segment on MSNBC. Chris Hayes brought on Masuda Sultan who was the founder of Women for Afghan Women, as well as Unfreeze Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. and I had like, you know, several minutes talking about it with her. This is like the perfect guest to have on this issue. It's someone who has a direct connection to Afghanistan, an Afghan American person, a human rights activist, one human rights Afghan American guest. I actually looked to see, I was like, you know, she started Women for Afghan Women, right? Like, she must be, she's a perfect guest. Like, for the past 20 years, she's been a perfect guest. She hasn't been on, besides that Chris Hayes show, she wasn't on for the past year. If you look back 20 years, she's been on a handful of times. Like, back to, even as far as, like, 2002, I think she was on some cable news show. But, you know, over that span of 20 years, you got, it was, like, less than 10 times. And this is the thing, when we looked at coverage of the withdrawal, we did a source study. This is the thing that we Do all the time at FAIR? Who gets to talk? Who gets to frame the story? Who gets to shape the narrative? Who gets to define what the problems are and what the solutions are? And so not only is it evidently just obvious that Afghan women are being used as political pawns just in terms of how the coverage spikes when the U.S. government is interested Mm -hmm. and then plummets when the U.S. government is not interested, but when you look at even when the U.S. media are professing interest in these women, who are they actually talking to about the issue? It's not Afghan women. <laughs> and it's not even their advocates. You know, I I can grant like, okay, it can be harder sometimes to talk to certain sources than others, although it's certainly not impossible to talk to Afghan women. But um, we did a study of sources in this was primetime network news coverage of the withdrawal a week starting with the day the Taliban took over Kabul. 5% of the sources were Afghan or Afghan American women and only 11% of the sources were women of any nationality. So they're talking about, oh, but what about the women? But they're not actually talking to women, So they're just talking about women. So the women don't get to frame the narrative, and if they were allowed to help frame the narrative, you would have gotten a different story. I mean, throughout the whole occupation, you had Afghan women advocates talking about how they want U.S. involvement in local peace processes. They want the U.S. to support Afghan women's rights on the ground it wasn't happening, and you didn't get those voices in the news media, and so you didn't have anything kind of like shattering this narrative that we have of like you know the U.S. as the rescuers. But all of this stuff, you know, when you come back twenty years later to the withdrawal and the and the media narrative is, oh, we can't leave because what about the women? I mean, it just it's based on the assumption that women's rights actually did improve under U.S. occupation, which is highly doubtful. It's highly questionable. You know, After the 19 years of occupation, Afghanistan ranked second to last in the world on women's well-being and empowerment. In a, I can't remember what the index is, but it's a global index. Second to last. One in three girls was going to school. So when you sort of have this assumption that the U.S. rescues women, you don't look at, well, what's actually happening to women over this occupation?
0: I want to talk about the nature of doing media analysis, obviously, (laughs) citations needed, fair, we were focused on that, but it can be kind of deeply cynical work sometimes, right? And so I just want to talk a little bit about how, obviously, women's rights, women and girls' lives in Afghanistan is critically important. That is an absolutely important issue. The fact that sometimes news segments talk about it is good. It's just that, how do we And I guess here's a question for you, Julie. How do you, as a longtime media observer, of the tactic of having this story told only when convenient, how do you make a distinction between like this cynical exploitation of saving women and girls as very kind of Orientalist notion, imperial notion, but square that, of course, with genuine concern from these groups on the ground, from activists who are working tirelessly toward this every day like how do we kind of square that and in your analysis of who those sources are I think that's such a you know it's not just about mentions right it's about who is allowed as you said to tell the stories who is allowed to ascribe blame causes and also solutions also visions for how things can be different how do you in your media analysis kind of see that shaping up over time. You know, you were just talking about over basically two decades and like the weight of the activist voice, right, that isn't necessarily maybe being exploited, but is there finally as a a guest to really speak on something that they know about and care about, as opposed to the weight of, say, generals or former State Department officials that are just lined up by cable media bookers to speak about, you know, presidential policies on war and kind of sideline the issues that are still used to exploit occupations.
3: Well, I mean, that's the problem, right, is that there is no weight given to these activists and to the people on the ground. We've done so many source studies related to wars and foreign policy issues, humanitarian crises, and it's just always overwhelmingly government officials. That's who top U.S. journalists turn to as their sources. I mean, this is sort of like the definition of how you report a corporate media news story is you have to talk to the official sources. They're the ones who get to frame the story. So, the problem is that, you know, if they were to talk to a lot of these people, like Masuda Sultan, if she actually were given more of a platform, you would have so much more dissonance in your reporting. These government officials would be shown to be lying, they would be, Uh there would be a kind of confrontation and a dissonance that the US media are not, they don't show us that. They show us the official narrative. The discord they'll show us is Democrats versus Republicans, right? You don't get the third party, you don't get the challenge.
0: Not drone strikes versus human flesh.
3: Yeah, right. So it is so rare to see this kind of, you know, someone like Masuda Sultan given this opportunity to speak for a few minutes about being really critical of the Biden administration and what they're doing, freezing these Afghan funds. You don't get that. With the withdrawal study that I did, there were no scholars interviewed. There were no anti-war activists. There was a single human rights activist who actually wasn't even identified as a human rights activist. She was identified as someone who educates girls. But that was like the one activist out of 74 sources in this week of withdrawal that we were looking at. I mean, the media had decided that this is a story that's framed around the government and the military. And so that's who the vast majority of their sources were.
1: Yeah, because I mean, obviously, you know, there are 19 million Afghan women, there are 19 million different opinions. There's no sort of uniform voice, which is one of the things that comes up in a lot of human rights discourse and about US interventions, where there's this we're sort of told there's this essential voice that we're gonna speak on behalf of. And that is obviously very muddy, especially in the during the withdrawal, because I think there was the cynical evocation of women's rights on the one hand, there was the Taliban, pro-kind of Taliban elements on the other. And then there I think there was probably legitimately a third party, which or third position, which is. We support U.S. withdrawal, but the sort of nature of it, right, the kind of process criticism. Mm-hmm. I think there was a lot of disingenuous concern trolling from U.S. pundits about this, but I do think that within Afghan civil society, from my observations, there was people who supported the withdrawal in principle, but thought that they basically, the U.S. government, propped up and funded with matchsticks over the years, these human rights groups to kind of act as the the PR wing of their occupation. But the rank and file were occupied by really determined, strong-willed, good-faith people who were trying to really create good, right? But that was the only game in town was the NGO and U.S. military, so you had to work with them. That those people were hung out to dry, that they were left and the U.S. was more worried about getting its personnel out, understandably to some extent, than it was the Afghans they had built up and propped up for years and basically left them to be fed to the wolves.
3: Mm -hmm. And that's a real story, right? But then it's also like... When you have so few Afghan sources to begin with, then you do end up kind of turning them into this undifferentiated mass. Like, it's just you don't have enough difference also that all of these tv networks they're just in kabul they're not going out into the rural areas there's such a difference between kabul and the rural areas and so afghan women's experiences in different parts of afghanistan was dramatically different
1: so let's talk about that Mm -hmm. i want to ask about that i want to ask about the the new yorker article by anand gopal that the other afghan women that blew up this kind of simplistic narrative it was in the new yorker so it had the sort of stamp of approval of kind of liberal intelligentsia right that really detailed the horrific toll U.S. wars took on rural women in Afghanistan, specifically the the drone war. And then, of course, they wouldn't have known at the time, but later, of course, sanctions, uh, you know, as well. Can you talk about how that article kind of muddied the narrative and showed that, again, these kind of simplistic voice of the people listen to X narratives are never that simple?
3: Right. So this was really fantastic reporting. This is, you know, he was on the ground in Afghanistan, spent a lot of time in areas that most US journalists didn't go. And he interviewed so many people and really found out that in these rural areas, especially the ones that were particularly affected by US airstrikes, that just every single family had so many people in that family impacted by airstrikes, killed, injured. And the way that the war played out in these more rural areas of the country was so different from what but, I mean, we just weren't getting reporting about this in the US because, again, most of the reporting. Well, first of all, a lot of outlets just pulled, you know, when the war was supposedly over, media resources left. People weren't going to devote, you know, you got to have security details. You got to have, there's resources involved in having journalists on the ground in Afghanistan. And so you just didn't have nearly the number as you had during the official, like, invasion. 20-some years ago. So, there just wasn't as much invested in that, and people weren't leaving the capital as much because this was the area that was just not under U.S. control. All the U.S. was doing was dropping bombs everywhere. They didn't have boots on the ground. And so, this is where he went, and this is where he was really documenting the toll that was showing that, you know, it's really hard to get casualty counts, but mm-hmm. he was suggesting that based on his really extensive reporting that all of the counts that we have the official counts or just extreme underreporting, undercounting of how many Afghans really did die. And not just, I mean, it's not just deaths. It's also all of the injuries and, and all of the disruption to families and, and communities. And it's really, it was really a devastating report.
0: Well, yeah, you know, it also makes me think about how there's so often like a binary that comes out of the way that The way that Afghanistan is reported on. And I mean, similar to, I guess, you know, what we saw with reporting about Iraq, of course, but the idea that you can only replace occupying troops on the ground with sanctions. Like you can take one away, but then you have to add something back. And the thing that you're adding back is not ever going to be reparations. That, like, nothing we're seeing, nothing we're hearing is about calling for a true accounting of two decades of destruction... Of people's lives.
3: Right, because this is what empires never have to do,
0: right? <laughs> exactly, exactly, right? And so it's all about how do we get our troops out safely? Oh, the poor people that were leaving behind and we had been protecting them and now they're, they're without their protectors, us, the noble Americans, you know, or noble troops from allied countries, but we have to protect our own. This has been a, you know, what do we hear all the time? Debacle, a quagmire, right? We got to pull out. Finally, we have to come to terms with this. Except it's never coming to terms with the acts that we have already committed and that will sustain for generations to come, right? So can you also just talk about in your analysis of the media that you're seeing recently with the withdrawal, but also, of course, you know, in the previous decades covering Afghanistan, what have you seen in terms of just the weight of where the focus is always, right? Like troop deaths, but we never hear about civilian deaths, right? I mean, like, we'll we'll see this all the time on cable news, you know, mourning for U.S. troops. Okay, sure, right? U.S. cable news, uh, sure. But never talking about the deaths that they are causing in someone's own home, in someone's own car, in someone's own wedding. Can you talk about the weight of that and like what you've seen over time kind of viewing critically this uh, media output?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when the withdrawal was happening, and a lot of these network correspondents and anchors are people who've been there the whole time. You know, they were around for the invasion, and they were doing a lot of these reflective sorts of monologues. And so many of them would talk about, oh, the, you know, we're leaving with this many U.S. lives lost, and this much spent. And so rarely did you hear mention of the toll on Afghanistan itself. The whole narrative was just the same from the beginning, like I've just pulled up here, Nora O'Donnell on CBS. This is what she said. She said, when America leaves for many, so does the hope, the hope of freedom, the hope for human rights, and in its place comes the sheer terror of what's next. You know, like, the language that they use this flowery like mm-hmm. prose that's so self-important and you have on the one hand they're talking about this worry for the afghan people but at the same time it's so superficial there's so again i, I imagine that nora o'donnell does believe herself to feel and care deeply for the afghan people but At the same time, she's unable to go any deeper with that to look at, like, what's actually happening to them? What do they think about this? You know, especially when you get into foreign policy news, you know, it's like the US is the shining city on the hill and whatever we're doing, it's saving, it's always civilizing, right?
0: But we're also always the victims in the story, right? And all the all the money in the world is ours to distribute. So it's kind of both things. Like, we're the victims of the Afghan occupation, like our troops that are the blood and treasure and the hope that we are kind of leaving there on the table. So, like, we are seen as being even, like, kind of sad and victimized in that so much more than the people of Afghanistan. Just like, then it's like we get to decide where money is distributed, money that isn't ours. So we're holding on to, you know, Afghanistan's money but then because we're so victimized half of it is going to go to the families of Mm -hmm. (laughs) 9-11 and so again it's like we are simultaneously empires do this all the time simultaneously so beleaguered and so victimized and so under threat and of course always all powerful and benevolent
3: Mm -hmm.
1: yeah I want to talk a bit about the civilizing mission narrative because it would be extremely convenient so we spent the top of the show talking about reading English newspapers from the 1880s, 1890s, up to the 1920s, about how the English colonies in India were there to prevent the reconquest of the Mohammedans who oppressed Hindu girls and women because they instituted a kind of Islamic religious order on India. So the rhetoric is remarkably parallel. And it would strike me as extremely convenient that, you know, 100 years later, we have virtually the same arguments And it seems like getting into the nuances of, well, were Hindu women better off under British occupation, seems to kind of be missing the point, right? Because every empire in history always says they're preferable to the alternative empire or other ruling order, whatever it happens to be, right? Heart of darkness, right? The sort of great critique of the Belgian Empire in Africa. was written by Joseph Conrad, a huge proponent of British Empire, because he thought they were morally superior to Belgian Empire. And of course, the the follow-up to that would be, well, what if we just don't have any empires that are occupying this place? (laughs) Maybe that's a little pat, but that's the way I perceive it. So I want you to talk about the kind of Civilizing Mission 2.0. It's a little more sophisticated, right? You have your NGOs, you have your Oscar-winning films. You have your kind of slick nonprofits that do work. You had Amnesty International lobby NATO to remain in Afghanistan in 2012. They had a lot of pushback from that, but they were, during the NATO meeting in, in London, they put up signs of it where we're saying, you know, keep the progress going. Don't abandon Afghanistan. Don't leave Afghanistan. It's like, what the fuck is this? This is supposed to be a human rights organization promoting the endless occupation of a, of another country. So talk about the kind of 2.0 civilizing mission narrative In the sense to which, yeah, like it would be, it's extremely convenient because it's just the same version of the other thing we did or we being the the quote unquote West, right?
3: Right. I mean, I think in the current US narrative, we're not an empire, right? Like we don't talk about the mainstream doesn't talk about the US being an empire. We are, you know, just sort of like the good cop of the world, right? We kind of help out those in need our founding principles are these ideas of freedom and self-determination. I mean, obviously, you know, there are lots of problems with how that that happened. But like, how do you get that to jibe with the idea that we're not letting billions of, like, we don't believe in self-determination for billions of other people in the world. Well, you know, we've got to have some kind of justification for that. I mean, all of these sorts of, there's been this shift over time with all of these wars that the U.S. is involved in from it being about, back when it was about just sort of like projecting power or Soviet Union or whatever, we're we're really, we've shifted in the last few decades to this idea of the U.S. projects its power because of human rights, because it's the protector of human rights in the world, because we're trying to make the world a better place, because there are these dark threats around the world to freedom and democracy, etc. And I think that that's a story that people in this country like to hear. They like to feel that way about themselves. Like, oh, we're the do-gooders, you know? We only support wars because they are for good causes. And the problem is that our media totally support that, right? We learn that in our history books. We learn that from our politicians. Both of our dominant political parties talk in somewhat of these terms. I mean, this is more of a This idea of like wars for human rights is more of a Democrat idea than a Republican idea, but it is kind of, it has gained a lot of traction in the mainstream. And then, so from our media too, being dominated by government sources, by think tank sources, you get the same sort of narrative. And as I was saying before, the idea of having critical voices of US motivations in the U.S. news is really anathema. Like you probably have heard the story when our founder Jeff Cohen was working for Phil Donahue's MSNBC show in the lead up to the Iraq War. It was quite popular. It had really high ratings. And But Donahue was personally quite critical of the Iraq War and he had on guests who were critical of the Iraq War. And he was let go explicitly because of his anti-war Guests and his anti-war statements that there was an internal memo that leaked that he was going to be a difficult public face for NBC during this time of war when all the competitors would be waving their flags at every opportunity. You know, it was like the news media, the big news media, know what they're supposed to do. They know how to get in line and all of the journalists who work for them know how to get in line or else they know what's going to happen to them. And so you have this monolithic kind of narrative that just doesn't get challenged within that status quo. You know, you only get challenges from the fringe, which, you know, like fair, like citations needed, you know. I'm not getting called by by CNN very often ever <laughs> to talk about my criticisms. <laughs> so, you know, there's a status quo that's being maintained very carefully by these media outlets.
0: Well, this has been so great. We've been speaking with Julie Holler, Senior Analyst and Managing Editor at Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, otherwise known as FAIR. Julie, thanks again for joining us today on Citations Needed.
3: Thanks. It was great to be here.
1: Yeah, I think the, um, this has dragged on for so long now that activists are looking for some kind of impetus And there was a moment there briefly in the winter of 2021 where there kind of was a movement. There's a New York Times editorial that was getting more mainstream coverage. And then it just kind of went away. And they're just kind of holding on to the money forever because Biden has no incentive and doesn't really seem to give a shit. And his State Department is run by some of the worst people in the world. None of them give a shit. And so, you know, I think it is politically toxic, but also I think very much it's about being emasculated. I don't think people quite appreciate how much of this decision is made by a, like, fuck you, we lost, and we're just going to, we need to come away with some kind of W. And the humiliation of those visuals.
0: Especially after getting so much flack for
1: the withdrawal. Right. Because Biden gets attacked from the right on the withdrawal all the time, like to be clear, right? Exactly. But then needs to somehow reassert that the
0: US is still, still holding the reins, right? Still somehow controlling the destiny of... Of that place, and the victory we have is by making sure that the baddies that we lost to effectively are not allowed to even attempt to put a state together because we are holding all of the wealth of that country. And so, you know, it's basically like a fait accompli, right? You get to say, Oh, well, look, it's a failed state. It's a failed state. We left and it's a failed state. It's like, but you're not actually allowing a state to function on purpose. And I'm not saying that like the fucking Taliban is going to put together an awesome government. Fuck the Taliban. I'm just saying that like, when you seize the assets of a nation,
1: they're still somewhat accountable to people. Yeah. And of course they they say, oh, we'll give it back based on a series of ever evolving humanitarian criteria for which they absolutely do not apply to any country. Not only do we not steal their money, right? But we give them billions of dollars in aid like Israel or Saudi Arabia They're subject to no such criteria. They're subject to no such humanitarian concerns. So, I I mean, look, obviously, it's a total cup and ball game. I mean, none of of this is remotely consistent or honest or intellectually honest. And so uh, people will just continue to starve because there isn't momentum in the media. The the media doesn't give a shit. Uh, They've largely ignored it. And to the extent they have covered it, they've completely glossed over or admitted the U.S.'s role in it. Well, right. And I mean, you can
0: see the stark difference in the way that media coverage really does affect public pressure as well as legislators' uh, perceptions of things. Uh, Wars can be built up by media frenzy when it's aligned with, like, a political interest. And it's the same here. It's that you don't see any interest by the media to follow through on even the crocodile tears that they were shedding for the people of Afghanistan when the withdrawal was being discussed. That just evaporates, and now it's back to holding a nation hostage out of some sort of revenge, vendetta, and, uh, you know, humiliation spiral based on losing a 20-year occupation. And so, yeah, I mean, I think you can see the effect of this and, you know, thrilled that we were able to talk to our two guests today about that and to go in so uh, deep on this issue Adam it had been a long time since we spoke about Afghanistan so glad we got to it but that will do it for this episode of Citations Needed of course you can follow the show on Twitter at Citations Pod Facebook Citations Needed and become a supporter of the show through Patreon.com slash Citations Needed podcast all your support through Patreon is so incredibly appreciated as we are 100% listener funded and as always a very special shout out goes to our critic level supporters on Patreon, they include Brad Hayward, Zach Kathcart, Lorenzo Mitchell, Eric Knight, Morgan Green Hopkins, Ed Zitrin, Corporate Zombie, Joseph Erickson, Eric Joyner, Buzzamonga, Stinky Pete, DL Singfield, JM Geralt, Chris Vincent, Nigel Kirby, Scott Roth, Porter Schutz, Zachary Henson, Josh Durlum, Joe Wengert, Steely, Dan Halen, Douglas, Danger Manly, Green New Neil, Trasdat, Brickshop Audio, Supple Old Man, Natika Reddy, David McMurray. MSP William Rush Jason Eason Chris Sarah Dash X Ben Lazar Joe Schmo James Michaela Greg Westney Drew Johnson Max Bellanger, David Bettner Brendan O'Connor Ultra Miraculous Zappos, Stern Wyvern Darren Brady Bart DeCorsi Ra Mr Honeycrisp Justin Harper Max Wilsey Blake Bunell, Zenia Zivornik Brendan Hines Doc Reitzel Philip Moss Rulo's Bar Shockfist, Fist Weed Lord Backups Care and of course Computer Scare. I am Nima Shirazi.
1: I'm Adam Johnson.
0: Thank you for listening again to Citations Needed. Our senior producer is Florence Burrow Adams. Producer is Julianne Tweeton. Production assistant is Trenda Lightburn. The newsletter is by Marco Cardellano. Transcriptions are by Morgan McCaslin. The music is by Granddaddy. Thanks again for listening, everyone. We'll catch you next time.